Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the timbrel, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a voice I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, uh, with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, that you never break your promise, but that when we meet together in your name, you come. So come in these next few minutes and make us to know that you are here, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Nine years ago, there was a book that appeared on the American market written by a psychotherapist that received a substantial amount of currency. The man who wrote it was not a Christian. But in that volume was a case study, which has intrigued me for the years since I read it, some seven, eight years ago. The young man who was involved was named Ted. At 30 years of age, he lived in a cabin out in the woods, in deep woods, as a hermit. He had lived alone, hermit-like existence for seven years at that time. He had few friends. None of them were close. He had not dated in three years. He spent his time fishing and reading and trying to make those incredibly difficult decisions, like what to have for supper, and after he had decided how then to cook it, or whether he could spend money on an instrument, a tool that he wanted. Now, his problem was not financial because he was wealthy through an inheritance that had come to him. It was not that he was not intelligent because he was brilliant. He himself knew that, and all who knew him knew it. But his problem was that he didn't have an interest in anything. Life was an insurmountable problem. Enthusiasm was something he knew nothing about. 
He had come from a home that was wealthy. His parents had been upper-class leaders in their community, but their marriage was a farce because they did not love each other and they tolerated each other to keep the three boys together. He himself was the youngest, and he was the prey of two older and relatively vicious brothers. At 17, he had a love affair that moved him profoundly. He passionately loved the girl with whom he was going, and she ditched him. That next year, he went to college, and he spent the year trying to recuperate, and most of it he spent drunk. In spite of the fact that most of his freshman year was spent under the influence of alcohol, he was bright enough that his grades were good. During the course of his college career, he had several affair, love affairs with other students and people whom he knew. Everyone seemed to be a bit worse than the previous one. During his junior year, one of his close friends was killed in an automobile accident. That affected him enough that he stopped drinking. But his problem was how to make a decision and what to do with his life. It was illustrated supremely when he came to his time for graduation. He had successfully passed all of his courses, had all of the credits necessary for graduation except for one short thesis, and he couldn't decide what to write on. So while his classmates graduated, he rented a room in the city where the university was and spent three years writing a paper that could have been done by him easily in 30 days. Then he went to the woods for seven years. It was at the end of the seven years that he went to the psychotherapist. He had thought his problem was his sexuality, and so he had read Freud extensively. The psychotherapist, a Yale Ivy League graduate, said he had read much more of Freud than I had read. The psychotherapist noticed three things about him. One was that total lack of enthusiasm. Everything was blah. The second was that he was quite snobbish and opinionated and felt quite superior to many other people. But he was thirdly very secretive about himself and about his own inner life. And now he was face-to-face with a psychotherapist. He said, it was six months before I found a single chink in his armor. But after six months, he said, he came in one day, and he asked him how he was, and he said, oh, terrible. He said, I spent last night with a friend of mine, and he wanted me to listen to the soundtrack of Neil Diamond's Jonathan Livingston Seagull. He said, I cannot feature what people how people can be interested in such garbage, mucilaginous garbage. The psychotherapist thought, wait a minute, there was a religious streak in that book. He said, was the music religious? Well, he said, I suppose it was. Well, he said, uh, is your problem religion? 
Well, he said, I cannot tolerate that mawkish sentimentality that passes for religion. Well, he said, what kind of religion can you tolerate? Well, he said, I guess to be honest about it, I don't know any religion that I can tolerate. His anger impressed the psychotherapist, so he pursued him. He said, were you ever religious? Yes, he said, when I was a senior in high school and the boarding school to which my parents sent me, I was a deacon in the boarding school church. Well, he said, when you went to college, were you religious? No. He said, when I left high school, I never attended church again. I have never been back. He said, a month later, I found a second chink in his armor. He said, I was pursuing that question of his, of the lack of enthusiasm. Well, he said, the last time I was enthousi- enthusiastic was when I was a junior in, uh, in, uh, a junior in college. And he said, I had an English literature course. He said, uh, in that course, I had to read Gerald Manley Hopkins' poem, Pied Beauty, which I now have left. No, I haven't. I think I have it. Listen to this poem. It had moved the young man profoundly. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brindled cow, for rose molds all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire-cold chestnut falls, Finches' wings, landscape plotted in peace, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, Sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. He said, you know, I noticed immediately two things about that poem. He said, when he told me about how it had moved him, I went to my own personal library and found an old British poetry volume and chased it out and said two things were immediately obvious. It's a poem about enthusiasm. The kind you get when you see dogwoods and redbud like you do in Kentucky at this time of year. He said it was not only about enthusiasm, enthusiasm, it was about God. He said, uh, I tried to think through when he had become interested in that and pushed him. And I found that it was in January of his junior year. And then I remembered that his close friend, Hank, died in February in the automobile accident. So he said, ah, you were a senior in high school and you had a girl whom you loved and she ditched you. You were a junior in college and your close friend died and you lost your enthusiasm because of the tragedy of those two events. Oh, no, he said, I didn't lose it. It was taken from me. 
And the psychotherapist said, Ah, I thought I had another clue to him. So I said, Oh, God rejected you in high school and in college, and so now you have rejected him. He said, Why shouldn't I? With the kind of world he's given us. Well, he said, I thought you had a relatively happy childhood. He said, happy childhood with two brothers, like the brothers that I had that preyed on me until my parents sent me off to boarding school. He said, "Uh, no, my childhood was an unmitigated horror. He said it was uh, about eight months after that when another break came. He said, uh, he came in to see him one day and said to the psychotherapist, you accuse me of, see- of being secretive, not being open with you. Last night I was rummaging around and found a diary which I kept in my sophomore year in high school. I haven't even reread it to see what's there. I haven't censored it. Why don't you take it and read it and get a view of the unexpurgated me at 19? So he said, I took it and spent two evenings reading it. He said, to my surprise, he said, I found a story about a snowstorm. He was in a northern school. One Sunday, he went for a long walk. He said, a tremendous snowstorm came and came quickly. And it was so intense that he said, I had difficulty getting back. And so he said, for three hours, I fought my way through the blackness in a snowstorm. And he said, when I got back, I found that that experience had been exhilarating. He said, in the journal, it said, quote, not unlike that I experienced last summer when I came so near to death. And the psychotherapist said, Ted, when did you come so near to death? Ted said, oh, I've told you all that. The psychotherapist said, no, you've never shared that with me. Oh, yes, he said, I'm sure I've shared it. But he said, I was used to that. Always when we got to anything crucial, he built his barrier. But I pursued him, and so he said he told me about, between his freshman and sophomore years, he was uh, during the summer in in Florida, and he was in a hurricane So one night in the midst of the hurricane, he went out on a long concrete pier just to sort of challenge the elements. He said there was something exhilarating about that. He said, perhaps I was suicidal. But he said, I just wanted to be alone. And after all, what did I have to live for? So he said, suddenly... A massive wave swept across the pier and swept me out into the sea. And he said, I was terrified. He said, uh, I knew it was all over with when suddenly I felt myself slammed by another wave which pushed me in another direction. And suddenly there I was on that concrete pier again. He said, I grabbed hold, 
and pulled myself as I crawled, knee step by knee step, until I was back to safety. He said, uh, Ted, you never told me that. How did you feel after that experience? Well, he said, what do you mean? Well, he said, how did you feel after that experience? Well, he said, I guess I felt sort of fortunate. Lucky, I guess. The psychiatrist who was not a Christian said, that's interesting. When your girl ditches you and your good friend dies in an automobile accident, you blame it on God. But when you have an experience like that that some people would call miraculous, you shrug your shoulders and say, luck. He said, you know, I think you need to get consistent. He said that was a turning point. And Ted began to try to work his way through the nature of human life. The fact that there is such a thing as good, but there's also evil. But with the evil, there's the good. As the poem said, there's the sour, but there's the sweet. As the poem said, there's the dim, but there's the adazzle. So he said he began to work his way through the reality of suffering as a part of human life, the paradoxical nature of our existence, the dappled character of things. He said along with that, a friendship began to grow between Ted and me, the psychotherapist. He said, I liked him. In fact, he said, I began to find I loved him. And he said he began to reciprocate. And as we began to enjoy each other, he began to open to me more. And he said, is he open to me? He began to let that latent religious interest begin to surface. He actually began to read theology. And as he read that, he said... Uh, he listened to Jesus Christ Superstar and actually went out and bought a copy of Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Now, that wouldn't do much for me, but it was a move in the right direction and had right symbolism for him. He said one day, he said, he came in and looked at me and said, well, he grinned a little and said, I've decided to go to graduate school. Well, he said, what are you going to study? Well, he said, I've reached the point in life, I don't have as much time as I once had, I ought to devote it to important things. So I'd like to give myself to the most important thing. I think I'll get a graduate degree in psychology. So the psychotherapist looked at him and laughed and said, you mean to tell me that you think that psychology and psychotherapy are the best that life has to offer? and the best things to which you can give yourself? Well, he said, no, I guess God's the best thing you could give yourself to. Well, he said, why don't you do that? If you really think he's the best thing. Oh, he said, man, I couldn't do that. He said, why couldn't you give yourself to God? Well, he said, how do you give you, how do you, how do you study God? Well, he said, there are schools where you study psychology, and there are schools where you study theology. Oh, my, he said, I couldn't do that. 
The psychotherapist pursued him. And he said, oh, if I did that, I'd have to be enthusiastic publicly about God. And I couldn't do that. Well, he said, why couldn't you be enthusiastic publicly about God? He said, man, you still don't understand me. You never had two brothers like I had. Every time I ever got enthusiastic about anything, they scoffed and laughed and made a sissy out of me as far as they were concerned. He said, well, you're not ten years old anymore. And you're not the prey of your two brothers anymore. Why can't you do what you want to do? Well, he said, there's one more thing. And he said, what's that? He said, my parents, their way of controlling me was every time they found that I was interested in anything and enthusiastic about it, if I didn't do what they wanted me to do, they'd take it away from me. If they found I really wanted to go see my aunt, when they wanted to straighten me out, they'd forbid me. Artie said, if they found I really enjoyed my bow and arrow, they would take it away from me. He said, every time I've ever in my life gotten enthusiastic about anything, I have lost it. And he said, you know, I knew that day that we had come to the core of his neurosis. So he said we began to come to grips with that. And he decided he was no longer ten and he could go to theological school. He said the day came when he paid me his last, gave me my last check. And he said I looked down into my surprise he did something on that check he'd never done before. Instead of signing it Ted, he signed it Theodore. And he said, I looked at it and said, oh, you signed it differently. Why? Oh, he said, man, I hoped you wouldn't notice that. He said, you see, when I was a kid, my aunt told me that Theodore meant a lover of God, and that I should be very proud of that name. Now, the, psycho, the, the, the young man's aunt was wrong about her Greek, because as you who have had Greek know, Theodore means a gift of God, but that's all right. He told his brothers proudly that his name meant a lover of God, and they said, Sissy, why don't you go kiss the altar? and kissed the priest. And he said, I never told anybody again that my name was Theodore. But if I'm going to be who I am, and I am a lover of God, I will now sign my checks and all my places where I sign a signature, Theodore. He said, you know, I knew that he was ready for life. I was fascinated to think back when I read that story to where the word enthusiasm came from and what it means. 
Do you know what the word enthusiasm means? There are three Greek words behind it. The immediate root, enthusiasmos, which is the Greek word for enthusiasm or inspiration. There is a verb, enthusiazo, which means to make a second Greek word, entheos. And entheos means to be full of God. And when the hermit opened himself to God, he ceased to flee from all of his fellow creatures and turned from his bitterness and his hostility to seek a vocation where he could give himself to the best and give himself for other people. You know, Christianity does make some incredible claims. We know that this universe operates under laws, And if a junior in college travels too fast on a crooked road under wrong circumstances, he can crash and be killed. And when God gave human creatures freedom, a girl picks one fellow instead of another. Life does have its dappled character. They're the second causes by which we can explain all natural forces. And cause and effect is a part of our world. But do you know what the, the gospel says? It says that behind all of those secondary elements, there is an ultimate. And that ultimate element is personal. And that when Mary's baby came to this earth, we had a chance to see his face and to see his heart. There we can see God. You know, uh, as I've told you before, out of all the pictures of Christ, the one that has impressed me the most is that of the light of the world, Christ standing at the door knocking. I think I told you I saw it first in 1955 and again in 1974, 19 years later. And he was still there. And every indication is that the people on the inside never knew that he was out out there. You may be caught in the middle of all sorts of secondary laws that are at work in your life. But I want to say that in the midst of them and behind them, there is a person. And we know who he is. He is the Father who gave to us Jesus the Son and his will toward us is good. And when we open to him, we find he's there 
And when he enters, we begin to find what life is intended to be. You have a good day.